welcome to episode 152 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, that was like a very sing-songy, melodic hey, brother you just dropped there. Yeah, I actually, there's this YouTube channel that I watch that's like uh, like Harry Potter video game movie theories. It's like super nerdy, but they also use <laughs> Hey Brother as, it's like two brothers, and they use Hey Brother as their like intro, and they're always like, Hey Brother! So, yeah. I just, I just, I guess I just stole their intro on accident. I think what I'd like to say here is that you are a renaissance man when it comes to movies and video games. I never know what you're going to say you've watched or seen or what resources you use. I watch a lot of stuff on YouTube. There's no commentary with that. I just watch a lot of stuff on YouTube. <laughs> good, good, because I didn't have any. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to, as always, starting with a little affirmation and a little bit of a denial. Nice. Why don't you go first? Okay, so this is something that I don't think has ever happened before. I'm actually going to amalgamate my affirmations and denials. I want to affirm with something so then I can immediately deny against it. Let's do it. <laughs> I was expecting more response. But well, you caught me in right, the I'll middle take of taking a swig of what I'm drinking, so I was a little taken off guard. My apologies. It's okay. So here's what I want to affirm with, and then I think it might become clear as to why I'm also subsequently denying against it. I recently came across this Twitter account that is the theological equivalent to driving by a train wreck and not being able to look away. So maybe <laughs> you're familiar with it. The Twitter handle is at fake sermon. Oh, I and, haven't seen this. And it is real video accounts. It's actually video clips of independent fundamentalist Baptist preachers. Oh, man. And it is awful, which is why I want to deny against it. So I'm torn a bit because I found it this past week. And then I'll be honest, I spent an inordinate amount of time scrolling through and watching these clips because they're just horrendous. And each one, you're kind of like, oh, I can't get worse than this. And then the, the next one is like even worse. So you could waste a lot of time doing this. And I I think it's worth looking at, but I haven't gone to the extent where I'm following this account only because I'm just afraid of any weird associations Man. with it. But it is downright uh, horrendous. And, and clearly, like whoever's putting this together is putting them together in such a way that they're highlighting just how crazy this is. And it's not just yeah. like the theology is absolutely crazy. That There's a lot in there that's just downright awful. But the things that really got me were there are several clips of especially Pastor Jim Stanbridge where he's just absolutely berating his congregation. Yeah, it, It's like what it reminded me, if I want to give like a really actual strong affirmation, is to go go back and look at that wonderful book, Reform Preaching by Joel Beakey. Like everything that's happening in this Twitter account is the exact opposite of everything we've yeah. been looking at together in Reform Preaching. So at the, I, at the same time, I'm going to say, I affirm it. you should go out and take a look at it. But of course, I deny against everything that is happening in these clips. Wow. Yeah, there's some crazy stuff out there in the IFB world. Um, I, I think like, like Steven Anderson is the most famous independent fundamentalist Baptist, but like, he's not really all that unique. 
except in the fact that he's unique, that he actually has a little bit of like savvy in how he promotes his material. And right. he he's like actually got a little bit of theological acumen, which is actually a little bit scary that he I mean, he knows Greek. He's actually pretty good at Greek. But there's a lot of weird stuff out there. He's not unique in that, like, he'll get up on his pulpit and, like, scream at his people. Which I'm not opposed to, like, a pastor berating and chastising his congregation when it's appropriate. But it seems like that's, like, the default mode for some of these IFB guys. Oh, it's it's style. And w- so here's what's fascinating about this particular account. What actually drew me to it and made me want to give the recommendation or the affirmation is that there's not a single, and I scrolled through like, I'm talking like dozens. I'm embarrassed to say how many videos I watched on this because they're just like little clips about two minutes long. Yeah. Not a single one of him. So we're talking about guys that like I haven't actually seen in any kind of detail. Yeah. And actually the berating is of like a crazy level and it's not just like berating on theological grounds. There's one clip and I don't, it's probably somewhere near the top. It's of Jim Stanbridge and somebody in the congregation was clearly not paying attention or yawned or something. Yeah. So he descended from the pulpit and then went on this tirade, including calling out one of the people who's right in front of him, saying that he's that person is one of the sorriest church members he has. He's not even worth 15 cents. And he says, now give me a hug. Give me a little love. You know that I love you. It's just wow. insane. That's, <laughs> that's just I mean, insane. on one level, it's all it's like funny, but it, it's not like that's that's straight up spiritual abuse. Like that's a straight up spiritually abusive situation. And like if that person decided that he wanted to leave, like he would be chastised and would be isolated from all of his former church associates because there's this gang mentality that happens in these churches where if you decide to leave, then everyone gets poisoned against you. Whether you leave, I've heard of instances even where people just move out of the area. And if they don't, if they don't invest the time to drive, you know, several hours to get there every Sunday, then they're seen as like these people who've abandoned the faith, even if they even if they tran- you know they find membership in another independent fundamentalist Baptist church or in you know heaven forbid like an evangelical church, they still get berated like they've abandoned the faith just because they moved out of the area for whatever reason. So it's right. it's a pretty it's a pretty scary kind of situation that you have going. Yeah, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. This is just what's on the account, and I just found it really fascinating. It really is like a train wreck that I could not look away from. I, I just could not believe some of the things that were being said from the pulpit, especially to people or about people. And yeah. it seemed to me like, and this, you know this, like there's a lot that happens in the IFB where there's this mistakenness of zealousness for truth and proper pastoral yeah. office. It, it's just really convoluted and crazy and wild. So if you're looking to like blow a good, you know, like 20 minutes on some things <laughs> where just, you'll just have to put down your phone and be like, whoa, what did I just watch? Yeah. This, the, the Twitter handle you want to look up is at fake sermon. So go check it out. Yeah. I think I would probably rather watch the grass grow than <laughs> to spend my time watching IFB train wreck sermons. But <laughs> That is what I'm it is. You, once you start, I was just sucked in. I just could not, because yeah. everybody hears about this stuff, but these are, yeah, again, like many of these are like well-produced clips in the sense that like, clearly there's a lot of money in, yeah. in a lot of these churches and that what the, the sermon that's being put on, it's being presented. There's, man, there's one. <laughs> There's just so many. We should turn this into a podcast. There, there's one as well where I think it might be Jim Strambridge. Something happens with the dude who's running like the audio and video. And he goes on a rant about how that guy is trying to promote his own kingdom in the video room. 
And it, like some of it is absolutely almost laughable. So it, it just made me sad for people in the sense that like we all need good pastors and yeah. you, you and I are like pro pastor all the time. Like we'll fly that flag forever. Yeah. And I just was drawn back into like, man, Dr. Beaky's got it right when we've been talking about reform preaching and yeah. what really that means. And oh, there's so much that's wrong here, but there's so much that's wrong in so many churches. And so I, I don't know, maybe this will just make you feel really good about your pastor. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure how we transition to my affirmation and denial. So I'm just going to go because I think Do we, it. we need it. to get off of this. Um, I'm affirming a new podcast called the Steady Anchor Podcast. Um, speaking of Twitter, uh, there's a guy on Twitter who goes by the handle 1689 gang and he does a lot of memes and stuff. Uh, and he has a new podcast called the steady anchor podcast and it's exceptional. I mean, I I think it's really good. Um, you know, I I've said in the past that, uh, the according to Christ podcast was easily the best, uh, reformed Baptist. And I mean like confessionally reformed Baptist podcasts on the internet and so right. it was a shame when it went off the air, even though it was for very good reasons. There's no no harm, no foul there. But there wasn't really much that could fill that gap. But I think the Steady Anchor podcast has the potential to be kind of that new 1689 perspective reform podcast. Uh, so check it out. Steady Anchor podcast. You can get it on you know SoundCloud, but you can get it anywhere else. Podcasts are found iTunes, podcatchers, whatever. It's really good. Um, It's a young guy. I think he's like 20 or 21 years old. He's in Bible college. But he's a really crisp thinker that I actually think is probably more mature. If you you just listen to him, you wouldn't think uh, this is a 20-year-old guy. You would would think this is someone who has a lot more uh, experience under his belt in life, but also just in doing theology. He's very articulate, very well-spoken, very thoughtful about what he says. Um, so check it out. I think there's five or six episodes out. It's really, really good. Have you heard of this podcast yet? That's high praise. Yeah, only because you sent it to me, but I haven't oh, well, yeah. actually had a chance to listen to it yet. So that is definitely going to be on my playlist for this week. That You know, you had me at 1689. So yeah, I'm, it's great. I'm right all in there. Actually, I feel like that was a great segue because that reforms, haha, that reforms my affirmation that involved the word Baptist. So I, I appreciate you <laughs> turned it around. Yes. Raise the I, bar. I also have a denial that is sort of an amalgamation of an affirmation, too. So we're both going to play this game a little bit. Great. So have you heard about what's going on with Benny Hinn at all? Yes. So this is a, a combination affirmation and denial in that I want to affirm the people who are being cautiously optimistic about this. Um, for those who haven't heard, Benny Hinn, which we all know is a a prosperity gospel preacher. He's got some really squirrely, weird theological things with the Trinity. Um, he, he just in general is, is not the kind of person that we want to emulate. Um, and I actually don't think we're on bad grounds to say that he's not even a, a member of the Christian faith with some of the stuff that he teaches and peddles. But he recently, uh, on in a sermon that he had broadcast, basically said that like he's abandoning the prosperity gospel. Um, he, he said things like... Um, you know, he, he felt as though he was profiting off the gospel. He was selling the gospel. He was, I think he used the language of corrupting the gospel. So there are those who are cautiously optimistic 
Um, which I think like his nephew, Kostihin, who was wrapped up in the prosperity gospel and now has become uh, an evangelical who preaches the, the real gospel. Um, he has sort of reformed leanings. Um, he he kind of said, I really hope that this is the beginning of a long uh, a long process of repentance in which my uncle Benny will ultimately embrace the gospel and will repent of his many sins. Um, but he's being cautiously optimistic. So that's my affirmation is the people who are recognizing that, that what seems to be happening is at the very least, Benny Hinn is experiencing some sort of common operation of the Holy spirit in that he is responding to the scriptures and the gospel in at least apparent repentance. Now, where, I, where the denial comes in is there are those who seemingly refuse to even acknowledge the possibility that the Holy Spirit is doing something in this. So I've seen people that have basically said, well, there's no way that Benny Hinn is ever going to accept the gospel. So all of you are just deceived into thinking he's repenting. So I, I don't think that we are at a point with what he said where we should say, oh, well, he, he's definitely a repentant Christian. But I think that we have to look at um, you know, I, I was doing an episode on the outward call, the external call of the gospel uh, for reform standard. And we have to look at it and say that there are those who are outwardly called who will experience some common operations of the gospel, but they are common operations of the Holy Spirit, but they neglect the grace that's being offered to them. We should be praying that Benny Hinn will not neglect the grace that's being offered to him through the hour call of the gospel and that these common operations of the Holy Spirit will culminate in an effectual call to repent and trust the gospel. So for those who are being overly cynical, I think cautious optimism is warranted, maybe heavy on the caution and maybe a little less heavy on the optimism. But I think that this really cynical assumption that the Holy Spirit is not working right now, uh, I don't think it's warranted. And I don't think confessionally that we're really allowed to go there. That's a good denial. I think how you ended that is exactly right on. There's sometimes this tendency where when we focus so much on what's been done in the past and who we think we understand the person to be, when we do that, we as Reformed people really betray the fact that we are not giving God his full weight of providence and sovereignty over every situation. Right. And in fact, yeah. God delights to change hearts and to regenerate. And that change always and often comes as a surprise to those who would presume that some person is so wayward or they're beyond help. And that's exactly the kind of place where God steps in. That, that's exactly the kind of situation where he displaces power because in truth, we were all that person. Uh, yeah. No matter where you kind of try to draw the line, we were all that person that was beyond help. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word. So speaking of people that need help, we're getting into Micah <laughs> again this week. <laughs> so good. That That is the kind of <laughs> top shelf segues that I've really come to appreciate, admire, and expect in conversation on this podcast. Yeah, well, you know, I I try. I, d I guess it's I don't so try good. very hard, but I try. No, that was, I mean, imagine if we tried, we'd just be crushing <laughs> how we move from one subject to the next. But you're right. We are in chapter two of Micah. We've made our way and we're going to take a look at the first five verses of that chapter tonight. So Jesse, can you give us just a little bit of recap of where we've been with Micah? Because some people may be coming into this uh, and this is their first episode of Micah cast with us. So can you give us just a little recap of chapter one, uh, kind of what we, what we talked about, what we learned and how that leads into where we are. Is that what we're talking about now or calling it now is Micah cast? Yeah. Micah cast. Everything like is that. something cast, systematic cast, <laughs> atonement cast, eschatology cast, reform preaching cast. And now we've got Micah cast. <laughs> 
Super, super original. So let me give yes. like a really high view. You can throw in some additional details that I missed. So we spoke a little bit about, of course, Micah's background, about where he came from, that he was a rural dude, that he was outside the urban environment, that God called him really to deliver all these prophecies against Jerusalem. And so we spoke at length, especially last week, about how the writing in particular is expressing and showing God's sovereignty over these places that God is showing he's going to deliver judgment, deliver uh, Jerusalem over into their captors. So we have here this condemnation against God's people, especially those who should know better about how to lead the people and that they've strayed so far from the Lord that he's going to bring them back to him essentially by way of this exile. So there's a little bit of irony there. And so we spoke about how this destruction is going to be both physical and spiritual in the sense that really there is a decay that he refers to that's happening in the culture of the people. And that decay is principally spiritual. And it's that very decay, which has led to the delivery of this philosophy, philosophy, this um, prophecy through Micah, by the way, the Holy Spirit, and will ultimately lead to their exile and their punishment. Yeah, that's a really good summary. And one of the things that we commented on last week um, in, during the first week of Micah cast, we talked about how, although the entire nation of Israel was guilty of sin, that Micah really paints this picture that it's really the elite centers of power um, right. centered in, in Samaria in, um, and in Jerusalem that that really was the origin point of the sin that Micah is pointing out. Now that doesn't um, it doesn't excuse the common person or the 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 people of the land uh, from their sin, but Micah is really drilling in on the fact that the the sin that is being judged really started with kind of the high members of society, and that's important for today's episode. And then we talked about how um, Micah uses the language of a plague to talk about how this this plague or this wound has finally reached the gates of Jerusalem. So there's kind of a dual thing going on where this this sin starts in Jerusalem, it starts in Samaria and the capital of Samaria and expands outward, but also it's finally come to the point where the plague is closing in on Jerusalem. And so when we get to today's um, today's passage, he's really focusing on what exactly and what particularly the sin that he's referring to was. So we talked about how, you know, there's an there's a latent idolatry that's present in uh, Israel and in uh, Judah at this time. And the the things that he points out in this this pericope here demonstrate what the idolatry was. It wasn't necessarily, although this was happening, but it wasn't necessarily that they were bowing down and worshiping other gods. What it is, in large part, is the way that the, the elites of the society are treating those who rather than, uh, rather than shepherd and protect, as would be expected of them, they were taking advantage of. So we'll, we'll go into the chapter here and we'll talk about it verse by verse, but, but that's, I think that's a good way to kind of preface this section. Yeah, that's right on. There's there's a lot that's happening here, like we keep saying, that is so reminiscent of modern times. And we actually, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking of my affirmation and denial at the same time. I mean, right. there's something to be said for understanding those who are privileged and overprivileged, especially within the church themselves and what the responsibilities are. But this really is something that is going to be, I think, particularly applicable to every Christian who is listening to this. And certainly I'm sure one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit included it in his Holy Scriptures. So why don't we get to it? Uh, How about I read, since it's just five verses, let me read the first five verses and we can just get after it. How's that sound? Let's do it. All right. 
So beginning in chapter two, verses one through five of Micah, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taut song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it far from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Yeah, so this section, uh, as I said, it really drills down on what the particular sin of the elites of Jerusalem specifically were doing. And so in order to understand this, we really have to understand kind of the the history of Israel and, and the laws that God had established for the inherited land. And so some of this stuff seems weird uh, to our sort of 20th century capitalist minds. And I don't say that to, to sort of like paint capitalism as a bad system. Um, I think given all of all of the different factors in the world. Capitalism is probably the, the best we're going to do right now. But ancient Israel definitely was not a capitalist system in a pure sense. And the reason for that is that a person's uh, property and wealth was not directly tied to their production. So a person right. could be uh, could have a really bad production in terms of their their family farm and their their ancestral allotment and lose their farm and then at least as far as God's law is concerned every 7 years that land would be restored back to them so rather than rather than possess the land by way of uh sort of capitalistic impulses of earning money and and retaining the land because you were productive on it this land is granted to them by God which in a certain sense, just points to the fact that our heavenly inheritance is not by our own works. It's not by our own production, but it's a grant that's given to us by God with no expectations of production in terms of earning the right to stay on that land. And so right. what was happening now in Jerusalem is actually that the, the the elite of Jerusalem were turning it into this capitalistic impulse where they were seizing opportunities to take this land away from the rightful owners, to take it away from those who had a God-given inheritance of particular land allotments, and to take it from them opportunistically. And that that's really the right. sin that Micah is narrowing in on, is this greed-driven uh, opportunistic seizing of an ancestral lands and the oppression of the poor on those lands. Right. Yeah. I like what you said there, because I think what we need to really appreciate is the reason for the law, because this wasn't just some kind of economic convention so that God would redistribute wealth over a period of time. So as to, let's say, make society equal or prevent there from being a disparity between those who are really rich and those who are really poor, which is like you said, I think where our 20th century kind of capitalistic minds, the proclivities to think in that direction. Well, isn't this right. great? Because it's this some type of great equality and God is showing his graciousness through that equality. And that, that's really not it at all because God is, by delivering this prophecy through Micah, really concerned, I think principally concerned, about the misuse of status to perpetuate oppression, which gets manifested in all of this taking of resource. Right. And so, like you said, a family's property 
or their inheritance, which is the word that Micah uses here, was permanent. It was like a sacred trust from God. And that goes all the way back to Leviticus 15. So I actually pulled up this verse because I think this is really helpful based on what you just said. So this is how it reads. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So what's interesting to me here is like this is coming after like the, the full development, the full scope, breadth and scope of the law is being presented here. And the rules for inheritance of land, and, and this is really crazy given like the culture there, notably include women. Mm-hmm. And that's explained after that whole account of Zelophehad's daughters come forward and they don't have, he doesn't have a son and they're worried that because he doesn't have a son, they're going to lose all of their inheritance. Right. And so in bringing forward these laws, what God is doing that's incredible like you said, is he's affirming that family and tribal legacy should be protected. And this prohibition against permanent transfer of land from one family to another are rooted specifically in God's ultimate ownership of the promised land and the fact that he has entrusted it to all his people as a good and fit and permanent possession to be enjoyed. So in other words, like the land is not simply private property that's to be transferred on the basis of human convention and agreement. It actually symbolizes life with God. This too, just right. like marriage, is an incredible shadow. And it's so serious that he inculcates this economic system with this idea that not only everything has to go back, but it's not because I just want to set everything back to where it was. It's because it belongs to me and it is a good gift to you. Right. And so because of that, it will be a constant reminder that everything that you have, like you said, is not something that you've earned. Like Just like when the Israelites came into the promised land, you're going to get to hang out in land that is not yours. You're going to get to chill on houses you about not build. You're going to get to drink wine, which sounds, I'm sure it was delicious, that you did not have to grow or press. And all of this is because I'm a good and gracious God. And so right. when we have these people in Israel of power who should be protecting, like you said, the most vulnerable, when instead what they're doing is participating in this calculated covetousness, it's not just theft. It's actually going against everything that God has laid out to explain and to give us a shadow for his good graciousness, both temporarily speaking, but also eschatologically speaking. So yeah. this is a major, major, not just infringement or infraction, but it's a major breaking of the law of God. And I would say like an abuse of essentially what is to be represented in this leadership as understanding the covenant promise of God. Yeah. Yeah. The, the image that um, that I get when I think about this is if you imagine a man who has uh, has two children and one of the children, for whatever reason, the, the father has decided to give them a particular toy. And, and so he gives this toy and says, we'll say the first one's name is John. He says, John, this toy I'm giving to you, this is your toy. It's yours to do whatever you want with it. And so then at some point, this father goes into the other room and the second son, let's just call him Tim. Tim takes the toy away from John and wants to play with it. When the father comes back in the room, he says, no, no, this this belongs to John. So he gives that toy back to back to John and so he goes right. back out of the room. And even if John at some point said, I'm going to let Tim play with this, when the father comes back into the room, he says, no, no, this is John's toy. And he restores it back to John. That was the image, more or less, that was being portrayed in the way that this land uh, restoration of the land promise was 
is that the land was restored back to who it was given to, even if for lawful purposes, it was granted to someone else for a time. Right. You, you may have you may have a situation where you don't you know, a family doesn't have any sons and so they have no one to work the land. And so they sell the land or they deed the land over to someone who can work it and make it productive for the time. But at a certain point, it's restored back to its ancestral holdings because that is who the Lord gave it to. And that, that goes back to Joshua, where we have Joshua and, and the inheritance of the land is drawn by Lot. That's because right. that's that's showing us that who who ends up in particular parts of the land and how much land is allotted to each tribe and to each family is determined by the will of the Holy Spirit. That's the signification of drawing lots in the Old Testament is this is how we know what God's will is. And so the fact that Benjamin gets this tiny portion portion of land and, you know, Dan gets this land up by the sea and Naphtali gets this land over here, whatever, that's indicated by the Holy Spirit because that's the Lord's will. And so when these rulers in Jerusalem or this elite in Jerusalem decide to seize the land that they covet jealously, when they seize the land, they're operating in direct opposition to the expressed will of God. And it's not just like nice. a vague sense of the will of God, right? Sometimes we we use, well, I'm, I'm operating against the will of the Lord. We use that in this weird sort of like, I, I think this isn't the right thing to do, but I'm going to do it. And even though I know it's against the will of the Lord. It, this is something different entirely because this is codified, expressed, written law for these people. Um, that it's not unclear that they're not supposed to do this. Right. And there's something unique about this because I just am mar I really just marvel at how brilliant God is. He uses a system which is so intertwined with who we are and transcends cultural and relationships and gender by going into the economic system and using that as a way in which he can remind his people that there is a certain characteristic of himself that is generous and loving and kind. And here is how I have it displayed. Like you said, what's interesting to me is that the Jubilee year did not preclude or prohibit the Israelites from selling land, selling their land for almost any purpose, actually. Like it, it, it was, it obviously had to be, it was codified by way of the law of normal transactional business. Right. But the purchase price, the compensation was always predicated on the number of years until it was restored. So it was almost like in your example of having these two children, how long can one child play with the other child's toy? Well, until the time at which it, the parent comes in and restores it until that known time. And, and so right. the compensation was always based on that. So all of life, even the transactions, and again, we're talking about big decisions, the biggest transactions we often participate in our own lives, at least in the Western world, are buying large things like cars or houses or getting education. All those things would have been centered on this idea of the year of Jubilee. Right. And so I see something that's really interesting in verses one and two that I think points us toward total depravity. And I want to throw this out to you because how I, when I read, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, it's very clear that what we're talking about here is, you know, the place where you should be chilling and relaxing the most, the place where you're dreaming of things, the place where you're brainstorming, what they're doing is they're using that time to devise these wicked schemes right. of finding ways 
to, to take people, the property. And again, we have no, no, what's clear here is that this taking of property is not the compensation that we hear in the Old Testament elsewhere about the proper way of compensating somebody for the use of right. land prior to Jubilee. So it's clear that this is absolutely theft. It's coming in and taking this land from somebody else without recourse. And so what's interesting to me when I read those verses is I see that the sin begins when the will consents to it. And that's very much like what Jesus said. So the sin begins when the will consents to it. That's this dreaming on the bed, this working of the evil on their beds. But it's expressed in action according to the ability of the individual. Right. And so here you have this will that is conceived in the mind in the bed during a brainstorming session, so to speak, or before sleep. And because these individuals are particularly powerful, because they are high up in their own society, they can express that action in a unique way that's according to their own ability. And so what that makes me think of is that we all will often have these kinds of calculated covetousness, and we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that we're particularly holy merely because we cannot act upon them. This is the kind of question of, or the statement like, does absolute power corrupt absolutely? And so, you know, without being divorced from God, without his sender, without his regeneration, we always tend in that direction. But our natural proclivity is to have a will that consents towards sin. But I think sometimes in God's graciousness, we are prevented from carrying that out, even though we are totally depraved, because we lack the actual ability. And that, too, is his graciousness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Calvin in his commentary makes the point that the very concept of rest, right, which is sort of supremely expressed in the, the Sabbath command that we're to rest one day in seven uh, to glorify and worship the Lord, but also to rest and recover and recuperate from our week of labor. Um that principle, although it's codified specifically in this one in seven principle, it still extends to the fact that we're to rest on a daily pattern as well. So so Calvin makes the point that this rest is given to man basically as a way to enjoy the, the fruit of their labor. And these people that the prophet is is invicting against, rather than rather than enjoy the rest that they've earned by their labor, the, the rest that's granted to them as a blessing by God, as a response or a result of their labor, they use that time when they should be resting in their beds to devise wickedness. So it's right. it's not just that they're scheming, right? There's a certain element of like, there's a, it's like they're kind of these smarmy people who are like, thinking of evil ways, you know, like you picture that guy in their hand, like they're just rubbing their hands together, trying to figure out the next, the next, uh, thing they can steal from someone. There's Twisting that, mustache. right. There's that element of it, that that's, that's part of what the prophet is getting at here. But more so than that, this place that's supposed to be a place of peace and rest has now become a place where they, uh, where they devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. So yes. there's there's a there's an intentionality to the way that's phrased to make it, you know, the the bed is supposed to be this quiet place of rest and meditation. And rather than meditate on God's law, they're meditating on ways to do evil. And then this is this is where I, I think what you said is so infight, insightful about this reflecting total depravity is that the sin is conceived in the heart and then it's executed in act. So the, the will right. starts to ruminate on sin before it actually operates in some sort of outward action. And so as they're meditating on this evil in their beds, they're working evil, they're devising iniquity in their beds. In the morning, 
They've been thinking about this and working on it all night. They get up and they have the ability to accomplish the sin. And so they do it. And so I think for us that that um, that helps us to understand how do we how do we war against that? How do we respond to that? Well, rather than meditate and devise wickedness on our beds, or you could say in our hearts and during idleness, we should be meditating on the things of the spirit, because just as the evil that was devised on their beds is worked out in the dawn by their hands. If we meditate on God's word, we meditate on God's word in that those moments of rest, that will work itself out in our actions in the same way that the evil works itself out in the actions of these men. Right. Cut to like the Apostle Paul being like, yo, I told you, take every thought captive. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's basically what we're talking about here. This idea that we ought to meditate. Whatever's good, whatever's holy, whatever's righteous, exactly. whatever's just like think about those things. Right. And that's a good word of, I think, encouragement to us because who hasn't like gone to bed after a hard day in a conversation where you wished you had said something or hadn't thought about some kind of biting thing that you could said. And then you're devising some kind of way, even if it's just in the back of your mind where you're thinking, I know I'm not going to really do this, right. but there's something that sometimes can feel so satisfying about entertaining those thoughts. And this is where I think we really get to see that this is not just Micah saying, hey, listen, guys, you've gone off the track a little bit, like you've been a little bit disobedient. What he's saying is you've taken everything that's good that God has given you, including this idea of rest, and you perverted it. This is the corruption. That's the plague. This is the disease. It's so ubiquitous. It's so deeply settled into everything you do. It's in the marrow of your bones that you've actually not just been disobedient, but you've gone against, purposefully gone against everything good that God has established. Yeah. So it's like of a crazy level. And, and what I find is, is really awesome because I'm just growing to appreciate Micah as a dude that can use amazing turn of phrase, again, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's yet another wordplay in this chapter, or these five verses rather, where it's between the phrase, who devised wickedness and I am devising disaster, yeah. which apparently in Hebrew are basically virtually identical expressions. Yep. And so you have this basically like these people think they're you know able to devise wickedness in such a way where they can take advantage of their power and the prestige and they will not be held accountable. And here's the one who's coming to devise disaster in a way that sounds exactly like what they're thinking they're doing to devise wickedness, that everything will be made right. And he uses the language to emphasize that point, which is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a there's a certain element of this, too, where he starts out by talking about beyond the wordplay, which is already pretty awesome. He starts out by talking about these these people who are in positions of power and they use this positions of power in order to oppress those that they can. And then he flips over and in verse three, he says, I will against this family, I'm devising disaster. There's that wordplay. And he says, you cannot remove it from your necks. He says, you will not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. So we have this tendency to sort of think about the wicked as though they have power, they have ability, they have authority, they have the the ability to sort of walk with their heads high. But what God is saying here is that you'll no longer walk with your head high because I'm going right. to I'm going to come down hard on you and you're not going to be get out you're not going to get out from underneath it. And I think that's something for us to remember too as we look around at our world, right? We think about the injustice that we see and we should remember that like there are those who seem to walk with their heads high, but either in this life or the next, they're not going to be able to walk with their heads high forever unless they turn to Jesus. 
Right. That's great. There, there, and speak, I'm glad you brought that up. This is actually a super great segue. You are the champion of segues because <laughs> what is crazy is that there is, within all of Micah so far, there's been like this confluence or contrariety, maybe is a better way of saying it, where we're seeing metaphors used other places in the Old Testament, but they're being used slightly differently here right. or they're being flipped around somewhat. So when we get to verse three and four, basically we get this pattern where all sinners devise wickedness, God devises judgment. That's right. how this works out. And you get the symbolism of lines three or sorry, verses three and then four a, and we're coming into this idea of this yoke. So we get, you know, of course there's like the frequent metaphor of the yoke of subjugation and servitude. It's like the same thing that's used in speaking of Nebuchadnezzar and Jeremiah, but this imagery of breaking the yoke is more being used here of like throwing off Yahweh's authority. It's like a foreshadowing of the yoke of Christ. But here the thought is not of his beneficent rule, but of his judgment. Right. And so instead of, you know, we, we often forget that when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, the yoke was a tool of leverage that allows you to enact more force on an object or to perform better or to do more work than you might be able right. to do otherwise by yourself. And here it's being used in the opposite direction, so to speak. And I, I love what Calvin says. I'm just going to steal this right from his commentary. He says, they who refuse to obey God when he requires from them a voluntary service will at length be drawn by force, not to undergo the yoke, but the burden which will altogether overwhelm them. In other words, the yoke is the thing that God gives us as his blessing through his power to forego and to go through this process. Almost like when God leads us to it, he will lead us through it. Here, what he's basically saying is the yoke is being taken away. You're actually breaking the good yoke that God has given you by way of right. his rules. And in so doing, you're about to bear the full weight of my wrath that you will most absolutely underwhelm you. Your neck will not be able, again, here's the neck, speaking of yoke, beautiful reference again. You will not be able to get out from underneath it, and it will absolutely crush you. You will beg for the yoke in that day. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think it it bears saying at this point, too, that one of the major themes of the Minor Prophets, I didn't even mean that to be like a clever turn of phrase. That sounds like an album title. One of the major themes of the Minor Prophets, that would be like a great court, like a great class (laughs) title for like a seminary course. Anyway... Um, one of the themes is what used to be called social justice, but that term has been so co-opted and changed that it doesn't even feel right to call it that anymore. And so sometimes people are quick to point at passages like this, where the elite of society are removed from their position and they're put under this yoke of disaster because they've stolen the land of kind of the peasants. And it's painted as this sort of like wealthy versus the oppressed. But the reality of it is, is that justice in Micah is not defined by some external standard of equality or, or distributive justice, which is kind of the socialist impulse. It's, it's defined by adherence to God's law. So the, 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 Elite that are being condemned here by Micah, by Micah, are not condemned because they have claimed the land of the oppressed. They're being condemned because they've disregarded God's law for how the land is to be taken and restored to the people. So, as you said earlier, there's lots of laws about how a person could buy the land from someone who is not able to sustain it themselves. So there's nothing intrinsically opposed to God's law to buy, you know, for someone from the tribe of Reuben to buy land from someone from the tribe of Simeon, for example. There's nothing opposed to that in the law. 
But what is opposed to in the law is the failure to do that according to God's standards, right? Uh, the failure to do that in a way that is just and righteous to restore that land back to the person in the year of Jubilee to seek to, uh, for one person in a tribe to seek to purchase the land of their brother in order to keep it within the tribe. That is something that's in the law. And that is what's being spoken against here. It's not some general idea of oppression. It's not this this neo-Marxist idea of those who have advantage oppressing those who are somehow disadvantaged. So we have to be really intentional when we go through the minor prophets and especially in passages like this to understand that this is really about blasphemy and idolatry, right? That's, exactly. that's the sin that's here. Yes, it, it's a sin to take the oppressed land away from the people that you're oppressing. But more so, it's a sin against the Lord of the universe to disregard his will for how how this land is to be allocated and attributed and to be used by the people. So it's important for us to just say that, that although, yes, we would affirm that this is a matter of justice, justice has to be defined, especially, I mean, I'm not a theonomist, so I understand that in other contexts, justice appears in a different form than what we see in the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. But when we're talking about an Old Testament passage like this, where the people do live under the theocracy of Israel, we have to understand that justice here is defined by God's civil law in reference to the land. This is just another great example of how intent precedes content. We need to do a little bit of heavy lifting and parse out some of this stuff so we understand what the underpinnings are of the prophecy that's coming forward. You know, this to me is, I I think what happens here is we just get caught up in the details and I'm neither a theonomist nor a dispensationalist. And it's possible that what I'm about to say is going to sound like both of those things and I don't mean it to. So that's my, my caveat. But this to me is always like the example of when you're young and your parents are teaching you as a young child that you should eat vegetables because they just want you to be healthy right. and to eat balanced things so that you develop properly. And so because of that, they create rules like you need to eat your own broccoli or you need to belong to the clean plate club. Or if you don't eat your broccoli, that's fine, but you can't eat anything else and you have to get up and, and leave the table and go to bed. Maybe this is just me. I mean, you know my mother. so <laughs> I do know your mother. That sounds all, like, all those like things, reasonable all those extrapolations. Things, Yeah, yeah, exactly. All those things actually happened in my life. And so it would be absolutely ridiculous if I called my mother after we finished recording this podcast and told her that I ate all my broccoli tonight at dinner and that she should be proud of me. Because those rules were for a time to emphasize something that was specific about the heart behind them. And so this is the same kind of thing where we get so caught up in the sense of like, well, well, don't you see what's happening here? Like those who are proud, those who are high up, those who have a lot of money, those who have wealth and status, they're being brought low and being brought down without seeing the heart of God behind those things. We're all guilty of coming into something and being so focused on the details that we actually do not, we just fail to see the actual heart behind God in those rules. So like, I would like to think that if, for some reason, like we snapped our fingers, you and I, or like clicked our heels and said, there's no government like theonomy that it, and it happened that we would actually fall into the same type of problems that the Israelites right. did here yeah. because of a failure to have a real heart change. And so I guess as we kind of like r- wrap it up, like we, we've already spoken, I guess, about there's an accusation in these verses 
there's something about the punishment that's coming. And then there's this conclusion, which draws into what you said. There's this wonderful tie-in where the, the Canaanites, uh, when they were ousted from the promised land, everything was, was done by a cast of lots. And you, we finish up in verse 5 with this phrase of cast a line by lot. And from what I can understand from like reading some others who are far smarter than me, that particular phrase is not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. Right. There, there is the cast a lot, which occurs in Joshua, like you said. But here, the land that had been originally apportioned by lot through the Holy Spirit with this, and there's this measuring cord or a line that was used to mark it out. But now there's no inheritance that's going to be given. And so I think right. actually we have at the end of this is the passage is actually foreshadowing the removal of the covenant blessings from old Israel and their transference to the body of Christian believers, which becomes the Israel of God. And I, I say all that to wrap up that metaphor with the broccoli to say, just like as Paul speaks about in Romans, we do have to be really careful that we've been engrafted, that we can have haughty attitudes in our yeah. own spiritual lives. And it takes a lot to fight against those. Because we know that God actively opposes the proud. That's what the scriptures say. Not, not doesn't help them out, not isn't happy with them, actively opposes the proud. And so we need to be so careful about any kind of root of pride that exists in our life, spiritual or otherwise. Yeah, yeah and there's a, certain, there's a certain sense of wonderful irony in how the condemnation of these people comes about, right? So the primary sin that Micah is pointing out in this section is that those in Jerusalem who have power have disregarded God's laws regarding the inheritance of the land. And their punishment is that they are going to lament the fact that God has revoked their own claim on their ancestral lands, right? So in verse four, they moan bitterly that we are utterly ruined. He has changed the portion of my people. He removes it from me. He allots our field to the apostate. And then the the punishment is that you will no longer have an inheritance. So those who have taken deceitful and wicked ways to steal the inheritance of others, they have now had their inheritance revoked from them. So so there's a sense of cosmic justice in that the punishment and the judgment that comes to a people always fits the crime to to greater or lesser degrees. But there's always an appropriateness to the punishment and One of the things, you know, that particular phrase to cast the line by lot is not used elsewhere, but there is a very similar line of thinking in Psalm 16. Um, And it says, behold, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So the supreme blessing that this in this Psalm that, that David is pointing to is that God has governed the falling of the lot. He's governed the way that the lot has fallen for David to give him a pleasant inheritance and, and that the lines of his property, the lot, that's where that phrase the line, the lines of his property are pleasant to him. And so rather than understand that the lines are pleasant as David did, the people in Jerusalem in Micah's time had decided that the lines that the Lord had allocated to them by lot was no longer pleasant. And so God said, fine, you're not going to have any lines to your property because you're not going to have any property anymore. I'm revoking your inheritance. And that's something that I think as the church, we really need to understand is that although we know that God will never forsake us, we have no 
promise from God of earthly temporal success or riches. And so we should be cautious because, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear about a church. Uh, and I mean like a local particular body that sort of loses everything, right? Maybe it's a storm that destroys their property or maybe just strife sweeps through the congregation and, and the whole thing falls apart. Um, I'm not quick to say that that's always a matter of sin because it's not right. Sometimes there are times where a church gets hit by a tornado and it, it has nothing to do with sin that's going on in that congregation. But there are also times where we can look at a, a congregation, a particular body that once had enormous influence in a community and through their own actions and attitudes has lost that influence we should remember that sometimes God takes away our earthly inheritance as a result of our own sin. And ultimately we confess and right. we know that that's for our own good, but we should recognize that that is a reality. And so we should read Micah and recognize that there are consequences to sin and God's judgment sometimes means that he takes away what we might consider and what maybe even was at one point our earthly temporal inheritance from the Lord. There was, of course, only one time when the punishment didn't fit the crime. Right. And when we consider the cross, what we understand is that we will never experience the pain and humiliation and discomfort that we actually truly believe because right. God, in his great mercy, has given us a savior to experience that, to take under that wrath in our stead. And yeah. it strikes me, as you said, that, that there in this passage we see both a spiritual lack of contentedness in relishing God's laws in using his rest for the ways in which he's prescribed it. And also just a straight up physical lack of contentedness that I actually just want more than God has given me. And we all, I think at some point in our lives or just regularly wrestle with those things. So instead of maybe kind of focusing on this passage and saying, well, here we see those who are powerful, we, we should almost just stop there because for the most part, those who are listening to our voices are in, and I consider ourselves as well condemned in this way, in a sense, part of those who are overprivileged. We, right. we, have, we have enough money and power to make Solomon blush. And yet we can be the most unhappy, unforgiving, unjoyous people. And so it, there's just so much here that's really hitting me hard because we need to remember that though God has taken on the wrath of sin through Jesus Christ, it does not negate the fact that as a loving father, he still disciplines his children. Right. And when we, when we especially, not just persist in sin, but volitionally run to it. That is of any opportunity, a particular point in time where God, I think is going to bring his discipline upon us. Yeah. And it's going to be a discipline that eventually of course leads toward our good and for his glory. And so we just can't discount that. And I, I just think that sometimes maybe this is just my own life. And perhaps with some of the, the, the sphere of influence that I'm in, I think there's a sensibility, and I've often heard this argument that, well, God doesn't really discipline his children the same way he does in the scriptures because we're on this side of the cross. Right. And I just think that is an argument based on a false premise. Yeah. I mean, the book of Hebrews basically says precisely the opposite. That right. if, it does. If God doesn't discipline us, then it means we're not his children. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, And, I, and those are heavy words. Yeah. I think coming away from Micah this week, the biggest thing for me is just to recognize that God's law is what determines not just right behavior, 
but it, it, it's what determines appropriate punishment and what justice is. And so I think there are times where, you know, I think something is fundamentally unjust because it offends my sensibilities, but I need to step back and I need to compare that to the law of God. And then I also need to recognize that sometimes the things that happen in my life that I would maybe think are negative or, or are not good or, or discomforting, that sometimes those are the discipline of the Lord, but sometimes that discipline is a result of my sin. So I need to step back from that and I need to think about it a little bit. I need to pray about it and I need to recognize that what's different between me and the people in, in that Micah is talking about is that this is judgment, right? This is God executing judgment on a reprobate, unregenerate people. That's not the situation I'm in. When God chastises me, it's for my own good. When he chastised right. the people in Micah's day, it was not for their own good. It was a retributive justice because they had violated the law of God and had no mediator. So when I look at, at Micah, I should be driven to my knees in gratitude that I am not like those who God says that that the yoke of disaster will not be removed from their neck. And the beauty of the gospel, when I look at Micah here, is that the yoke of disaster was not removed from Jesus's neck. He Amen. took that yoke of disaster on my behalf, and he tells me that I should take his yoke, which is a yoke of blessing that is easy and light. And so we should look at this and we should be driven to our knees in gratitude that we don't have to face the wrath of God because Christ, Christ faced it on our behalf. But then we should walk forward in justice as it's defined by God's law, because that's what a grateful heart does. That's well said. And what I've really been drawn to in this particular week is just this idea of creating a paradigm in my own life by the power of the Holy Spirit, where I'm trying to get to the root of what Micah is addressing here. And I think part of that is gratitude, like you're speaking about. Yeah. And the other part for me is just arresting in the comfort and sovereignty of God as demonstrated in his laws. Because I, I don't have children. I have lots of wonderful friends, dear brothers and sisters, that do have young children. And I see the wonderful ways in which they interact with their children and how they discipline them kindly but yeah. firmly, but especially how they make them eat food. If you really want to get a <laughs> sense for somebody's parenting, see how they handle their kids at dinner time. Yeah. Because this idea of like eating things that you don't want seems like such a straightforward idea. But of course, the child, they're just like, I do not like this thing. It doesn't please me. I don't like it. It's the texture. It doesn't taste good. And what seems like so obvious is that these things are good for your well-being. Right. And yet how odd it is that the child resists it so much because they just cannot conceive that this thing could be any good. Yeah. And yet that's exactly how I treat God in almost every situation. It's how I treat him when I get stuck in something as simple as traffic. Yeah. Where God knows what is best for me and I cannot just take him at his word and trust him. And even the simple ways. Yeah. And so I love this idea that what uh, Micah brings forward is something else that I read in, in Isaiah this week about uh, Isaiah uses this uh, really incredible metaphor in speaking about the Israelites about how they walked across on God's back. Yeah. And that he was the one literally supporting them. And it, not just like that was in his hand or that he created a bridge for them or part of the, the Red Sea, all those things he did. But that the metaphor he used that he was literally walking, they were walking on his body. He was supporting them and holding them up. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I see so much of that, as Mike is saying here. Is, do you not see 
that God has established all this for your good, and you refuse not only to submit to his kind yoke, but you want to break it, destroy it, and then go on your own against him in every conceivable way. And do you not see that I need to bring this disaster upon you to bring you back because your destruction that you will incur by way of going this route is actually so much greater yeah. than the, the discipline and the judgment that I will bring that will eventually result in your restoration. Yeah. Yeah. That's as good a way for us to wrap this up as, as any. So, um, we're, we're going to take a quick break, uh, after this episode and go back into our reform preaching cast. So next week we're going to be talking about chapter nine of reform preaching by Joel Beakey. So if you haven't picked up the book, if you haven't had a chance to read, we're still pretty much on the ground floor. Uh, so you can catch up quickly. They're, they're easy to digest chapters. We've got all of the previous ones up on the website. So pick up the book, uh, take a quick read, get caught up. And we're going to be talking about chapter nine next week, which I think is William Perkins. who's one of my personal, yes. one of my personal heroes in the faith. Um, I've learned so my much man. from him. I love William Perkins. He's such a great theologian, but he's such a great example of really just good gospel centered preaching. So I'm excited to talk about him. This is a great entry point. I want to just affirm what you said and echo it by just complimenting that. I want, I want people, more people to get involved with this book club with us. And sometimes it can be intimidating when you feel like, Oh, I'm too far gone. They're already into chapter nine. A lot of these chapters are kind of compartmentalized, but we're to wet appetites. If this is like helpful for anybody, we're about to get into some Puritan action. And I, I think like the Puritans are one super cool and two super misunderstood. Like we're not just talking about dudes with like pilgrim hats and buckles on their shoes. So like there's, there's a lot that's like just kind of misunderstood in evangelical circles about the Puritans. Yeah. Even with use phrases like puritanical. So this is a great time to jump in and get on the reformed preaching train. And yes. again, if you want to look at some really bad preaching, you can go to at fake sermons. <laughs> On Twitter. And then you pick up your copy of Reformed Preaching. You're totally refreshed. You're into it. And you're just loving your pastors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesse, this has been a great, uh, a great look at Reformed Preaching. Uh, Reformed Preaching. I suppose we could call it Reformed Preaching. But this has been a good look at prophetic <laughs> preaching and the prophet Micah. Wow. <clears throat> I'm, I'm so good at uh, segues that I just segued Micah into Joel Beakey without even realizing it. You can't, you listen, you can't teach that. Actually, probably you do, they do teach t- segues at like podcasting school, which neither you or I have attended. Is there a podcasting school? I don't know. I'm just, I'm sure there, there's got to be, right? Why have sure we gone like to podcasting something. school, Jesse? I don't know. Maybe We're we 152 start... episodes in and we haven't gone to podcasting school yet. <laughs> I'm we went confused. to the. Oh, this is going to be so lame, but I have to say, it. we went to the podcasting school of Hard Knocks. Listen to episode one. Yeah. So this is a funny story. So uh, we recently consolidated, or I suppose I recently consolidated. I didn't really ask you to before I did this. I recently consolidated the public domain and the Reform Standard into one single website. And I accidentally copied the wrong URL for a file on the Reform Standard. And I ended up copying and pasting in a URL 
from like episode 19 of the Reformed Brotherhood. And so it came on my podcast and I was like, who are these jokers? And why did it start off with like this weird, this weird guitar music? And I got like a thousand emails that were like, just so you know, you put the wrong episode on. So it's fixed now. But I was like, oh, man, man, we were really Uh, bad at this. I mean, we're not great at it now, but we were really bad at this. No, that's why, I mean, I feel bad for people who are just coming into it now and and think, man, these guys, how can they even hang together week after week? Uh, You should listen to the first 10. I know. It's because we didn't go to podcasting school first. That's true. We did not get a degree in (laughs) podcasting. So um, after this, I'm going to go look up and see how I can get a a BS or a BA. I'm not sure. It probably depends on the institution. I think it's probably a BS. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> probably bs podcasting right there folks <laughs> well All right. uh, on that note that's our go- that's our go-to segue well on that note until <laughs> until next time tony honor everyone love the brotherhood